This week on Life and Faith. One of his contemporaries said that Galileo would always rather lose a friend than an argument. He had a genius for alienating and, and hacking people off. This isn't a good or a bad thing. It just is the way that I am, and it can be good or bad. People just stand together and say, this is wrong. Forgiveness, it's an act that you practice all your life. And that helps you maintain a very different perspective on life. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, when CPX started over 15 years ago, it was right around the time of the firestorm of new atheism, with its portrayal of religion as superstitious nonsense that we no longer needed, a pernicious influence we'd be better off without. A big part of that critique was that science and religion are, by definition, at odds with one another. And it told the story of the history of religion and science as one of endless intractable conflict. Now that discussion, certainly the tone of that discussion, seems to have faded somewhat. But what hasn't left us are really important questions around the origin of life, the history of the universe, whether we are beings with souls, how we best organise our society in productive ways and what we might draw on to do that. Nicholas Spencer is a historian, very familiar to Life and Faith listeners, I'm sure, and his latest book is Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion. Now, Nick insists that the idea that religion and science have always been at war is a fiction, but so too is the idea that they've always been in harmony. The history of the relationship between science and religion is infinitely more complex and interesting than the myths would have us believe, he says. And this book does an incredible job of illustrating that. Vital to this study and the ongoing relationship between science and faith is the question, who are we as humans and who gets to say? Well, Nick Spencer is the most excellent guide to help us navigate this tricky historical road. I spoke with him from his home in London. In your introduction, Nick, you say that for much of history, uh, religion was not just not at war with science, but was actively supporting it. And you, you say that the conflict narrative that we're all familiar with between science and faith is a relatively recent thing. It is widely held, though. Oh, it's very widely held. We did some research at Theos a couple of years ago on science and religion. And one of the many questions we asked was about that, the extent to which people think that science and religion are compatible or incompatible. In the UK, it's two to one in favour of incompatibility. Um, it's not very different in the States. I'm not sure what it would be in Australia, but like you say, it's the default position. Yeah. And, and you also said that it's not really a position that's held by most scholars today, though. No, it's not. I mean, we want to distinguish about historical claims and normative claims. There are normative claims as in how science and religion should get on with one another lying in the background of the book. But the book is about the history of science and religion and the historical claim of how well they got on together. The academic landscape has completely changed in the last half century or so. You will find very few academic historians of science and religion, which is a comparatively new discipline, saying that the two have been at constant war or conflict, which is what the popular narrative has been, at least since the end of the 19th century. Yes, yeah, so the 19th century is a very important period in this. Uh, you have this professionalization of science into something that would be recognizable to a modern person. It's sort of 
Science is independent, has its own institutions and so on. And you describe the relationship between science and religion or theology at this time as being like a child leaving home for the first time. Yeah, I love that phrase. Tell us what you meant by that. So the first thing to emphasise is that science and religion, as we use them, are comparatively modern terms. They settle down into the meanings that we would recognise sometime in the back end of the 19th century. And people used the term science and religion beforehand, but they didn't use them quite the same way. And to describe the things that we currently call science and religion, they would often use different terms. So for science, primarily it would be natural philosophy. People would also talk about mathematics. They'd also talk about natural theology. They'd talk about medicine, so on and so forth. But there are a cluster of different terms, but primarily the study of nature, the philosophical study of nature was the kind of thing that slowly turned into science. Now that was inherently a Christian discipline. It was nurtured in the womb of Christendom, if I can put it that way, right the way back into the 13th century. But when it becomes more like the experimental natural philosophy that turned into science in the 17th century, 17th and 18th century, it was at first quite a ridiculous discipline. And I quote in the book a beautiful little, I don't know if I can say this, piss take from Gulliver's Travels, Jonathan Swift's Gulliver's Travels, when he basically mocks the Royal Society for doing experiments like weighing air and, and physically keeping a dog alive as they literally dismembered it in order to test the capacity of the lungs. Now, these were weird, strange and seemingly pointless experiments, but they were justified because they were seen to be contributing to our understanding of God's creation. They were theologically baptised, as it were. And so for a good 150 years or so, it was theology, Christian theology, that justified, legitimised, supported natural philosophy. And you got this hybrid genre of natural theology, which kind of bridged the two. But what happened in the 19th century was that this discipline having gone from being the kind of thing that was justified by theology and done by clerics and often done in kind of Anglican rectories, becomes professionalised. It becomes an independent, autonomous discipline, which doesn't need the kind of the theological protection that it has enjoyed for the last 150 years or so. So it's the analogy, as you rightly say, is like a, a child that's grown up in a particular household to think in a certain way, and at a certain point realises it doesn't need its parents' protection anymore. It leaves home in the 19th century, and that's quite a painful process, at least for a number of the clerical naturalists. But they come home for Sunday lunch sometimes, right? <laughs> <laughs> Some of them do, yeah. It's a slightly fractious lunch sometimes, but it works. <laughs> now, one of the keys to this book is the nuance of highlighting that along the way, there is no single narrative that can sort of illustrate the totality of the relationship between science and faith. I think that's one of its great contributions. And throughout history, there have been those from the religious side who were supportive of science, if we can call it that, and those who were more sceptical and vice versa, right? This is all through the book. You see this sort of support or challenge. That's right. I'm obviously writing, as we all are, in the kind of the long-term afterwash of the new atheist movement, which vigorously asserted, as indeed many of that school still do, that science and religion are in direct conflict. And they think that because they see science and religion as somehow competing explanations for the nature of the natural world. 
Now, in response to that, a lot of Christian apologists have, as it were, gone to the other extreme and said, this lot say they're always at war. Actually, they're not. It's been a, been a relationship of peace. And that's just not historically accurate. Yep. You know, that there have been plenty of times throughout the history of science and religion where there has been opposition to science voiced by religious figures and crucially on religious grounds. They've usually been much more complex than the new atheist mythicists have us believe, but they're there and they're real. So what I didn't want to do was, as it were, go from one extreme, which was conflict, 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 to the other, which was pretending it's always been harmony in Eden, because it hasn't. Well, you definitely bring that out. Now, tell us, not a very happy incident, but the terrible murder of a respected female philosopher, Hypatia, who it was in 414, I think it is, in AD, is killed by this mob called a Christian mob. Talk more about whether we think that's the case or not. Uh, but it did come to be representative of the conflict between science and faith eventually, didn't it? Tell us a little bit about yes. that story and what was going on there. So her name is Hypatia. She's a mathematician and philosopher, Platonist. She lives in Alexandria, which is one of the great cities of the Roman Empire. It's in the east of the empire, so it survives for several hundred years as the west of the empire crumbles in the 5th century. Um, she's a brilliant thinker. She's a teacher. She lectures in the town. And to scroll forward, what happens is that in the end of the 17th century, 18th century, some anti-Christian thinkers pick up her story, which has been lost to history for the last millennium and a half. And what looks like happens is that she's lecturing on mathematics and Platonism and the Christians don't like her and they basically drag her out of the city and they murder her. And um, Edward Gibbon plays on this one in his history of the decline of the Roman Empire. And it becomes one of the very earliest stories that crystallise the tension between science and religion. It's not very well known today, but it's the kind of the ancient equivalent, if you like, of Galileo, only even worse, because Galileo is just threatened with torture. She's absolutely butchered. Now, there's some truth in it. She is doing what she's doing. The mob that kills her are um, Christians, and they're probably populated mainly with monks. But actually, they're not killing her because she is a um, philosopher, because she is a pagan in a city that has very rapidly become Christian over the previous two generations or so. They're killing her basically because she has been caught up in the power politics of Alexandria. She is seen to be opposing the city governor and the city bishop provoke the shock troops of orthodoxy to take her out of the equation. Now, it's an interesting example. Christians are responsible for this. And it's the bishop who provokes them. So, you know, there is absolutely no sense in which there is no blood on Christian hands here. But the idea that they're killing her because she's a scientist, and I put that in inverted commas, is simply nonsense. They're, they're killing her because she's on the wrong side of the political dividing line. And it should also be said that you know, I, I wrote a little bit about Alexandria just occasionally in the book because some things I was talking about happened there. It seemed every time I turned to a historical book that described Alexandria, it was rioting. It was a constantly violent, rioting city. There was absolutely nothing whatsoever unusual about the mob butchering their leaders. They did that on a regular basis. Again, of course, it doesn't excuse any of this, but it means that this is a fundamentally, it's a social and political mob riot and lynching rather than any kind of prototypical science and religion conflicts. Yes, it's a really interesting um, example of the way 
an older story gets picked up and used in a particular fashion and sometimes not in the way that history warrants that now in your book you talk a very important term here is the partially overlapping magisteria that's a key idea yes it's really important to your whole thesis so um, the idea of partially overlapping magisteria comes in the first instance from Stephen Jay Gould's idea of non-overlapping magisteria. Stephen Jay Gould was an American paleobiologist, died about 20 or so years ago, was a great scientific combatant of Dawkins and the gene-centred view of evolution. And he was also a great combatant in that, whilst not a religious person himself, he was nothing like as antipathetic towards religion as Dawkins and his crew were. And in opposition to the directly conflictual competitive model for science and religion, Gould argued first in an article, then in a book in about 1999, that science and religion were different magisteria. He took that term from Catholic thought, meaning basically authoritative bodies of teaching. They were different magisteria and critically, they didn't overlap with one another. His argument was that science has got to do with facts. Religion has got to do with values and they're fundamentally different. So there can't be a conflict between them because they just don't engage with one another. Now, it's a brave attempt. It's a well-meaning attempt. It's certainly a more accurate attempt than the conflictual narrative to chart a relationship between science and religion, but it doesn't quite work because it's just too neat. It assumes that science is the kind of thing that is value-free, and it isn't, both in terms of the way it interprets the world but also in the practice of what you do in science. And it also assumes religion is effectively without content, if I can put it that way, or without any content that might be considered to be close to a fact. Yeah. Now, for a lot of the world, it works. So you know, religion does not have much to say about the structure of the periodic table or the nature of the, the cell. Science hasn't got a great deal to say about the meaning of the parable of the Good Samaritan or the history of the Nicene Creed. But my argument is that it's too neat. Actually, it's fine to look at them as separate magisteria, but they do overlap partially in one particular area, which is of central importance to the book. At one point in the book, you write that at times one of the biggest problems in this relationship between science and faith has been too much harmony rather than too much disagreement. I thought that was a really interesting point. Yes, this one really leapt out at me. This is best seen if you go back to the theological womb, if I can put it this way, that science or natural philosophy was nurtured in, say, the 17th and 18th century. What happens is at the end of the 17th century, after a century of religiously flavoured conflict in Europe, people look for ways of understanding God and understanding the natural order, which doesn't rely on these seemingly endlessly contestable theological sources. So we contest about the meaning and the weight we attach to scripture. We contest about the meaning and significance of the church fathers, let alone church authority. These are the things that differentiate Catholics and Protestants. So how can we find somewhere to know about God and God's creation that isn't so contestable? Well, let's look at the natural world. That is theoretically neutral and unmediated and objective. Perhaps that can tell us about God. So we study nature intensely. We realise that there's an extraordinary structure and beauty and order to it. And we say, ah, this is how we understand God. And the foundation for our understanding of God becomes our scientific understanding of the world. 
And this theory, as I've said before, really supports the practice of natural philosophy in the 18th century. But it gets to the stage by the end of the 18th century, most famously in 1802, with William Paley's book on natural theology, that basically you can understand God entirely through science. But the problem is science doesn't stand still. And there's a lovely illustration from this, from a short exchange that James Clark Maxwell, brilliant mathematical physicist, had with a bishop, um, Charles Ellicott, at the end of the 19th century. Ellicott's writing a book on apologetics. He wants to explain Genesis 1. He writes to Maxwell and says, what's your interpretation as you know, the world's foremost leading mathematical physicist on Genesis 1? Maxwell nervously says, well, if I was forced to interpret it, I'd talk about it this way. But then he says, I would strongly counsel against you going down this path because this is an interpretation of Genesis 1 according to the science of 1876. And the science of 1876 will not be the science of 1896. So effectively, if you hitch your theology, you hitch your ideas to this particular scientific wagon and says, this is how we understand God, the horse moves on and you're left holding an incorrect theory or an incorrect kind of underpinning. As it happens, that's basically what's going on underneath the Galileo story. It's a problem right back into the sixth century, and it underlies the fact that, weirdly, we focus on oppositionalism as being the biggest problem in science and religion. Actually, what is known as concordism is the biggest problem. That effectively, if theology or religion marries the science of the age, it will at some point become an embittered widow. Nick, can you give us a few examples, you could choose different eras if you want, of the way science has supported religious belief? So I can, but I would just want to caveat um, the word support there because there's a danger that as soon as you answer that question, you're into that concordism business yeah. again. You say science has supported religious belief, that very easily slips into science proves this religious belief or yeah. science is the foundation for this religious belief. Yeah, I'm belief. thinking more like points you towards some sort of understanding of the world that would include or compatible with. Yeah, That's what you want to go for. You, you want ideas that derive from science that are not directly antagonistic with, for example... So let me give one example from the 20th century, which is a lovely story. Georges Lemaitre is a Belgian cosmologist, quite a junior one, who writes his paper in 1927, arguing that effectively the universe is expanding. We don't have empirical data to support this, but drawing on Einstein's own theory of relativity, he argues that the universe is expanding, further galaxies are expanding faster, which seems to suggest that the universe has an origin. Before that, people seem to believe in a steady-state universe. Yeah. People don't like this, partly because the empirical evidence isn't there, but partly because Lemaitre is not just a Catholic, but he's a Catholic priest. And a few people think, ah, oh, hang on a second, we know what's going on here. He's smuggling Genesis into the back door. Oh. Einstein himself doesn't like this. As it happens, the empirical evidence starts to mount up for this, particularly after the Second World War. And at one point, Pope Pius XII picks up the evidence and said, we know there is a point of creation, therefore... There is a creator. But the interesting thing was that Lemaitre intervened with the Pope's scientific advisor and said to him, can you please tell the Holy Father not to draw that conclusion because you cannot base your theology on the latest science, going back to the Maxwell and Ellicott point. So that's an example where you could say the science points, gestures in the same direction as the theology, but you be very cautious about putting too much weight on it for stated reasons. 
listening to Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Nicholas Spencer, author of Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion. Now, key to the argument of this book is that the relationship between science and faith, at times harmonious, at other times fractious, centers on two things, authority, who has it, and personhood, who or what we are as human beings. So in this part of the interview, I pick up on the first one, authority, and particularly focus on the Galileo incident as an illustration of this dynamic. Now, one of the things Nick is at pains to point out is that some of these stories that have passed into myth and supposedly tell us that science and faith are at irreconcilable odds are very much often more complicated than that. Now, just a quick refresher. In 1633, a time of huge religious tension and conflict across Europe, the revered astronomer Galileo is forced by religious authorities to, under the threat of torture, deny his life's work. The theory that the earth moves around the sun and other related themes that he knows to be true. Now, Nick writes in his book, that at the time it would have taken diplomatic craft of the most exquisite and agile sensitivity to put forward heliocentricity and come out unscathed. It turns out that Galileo had none of that kind of diplomacy. Here's Nick again. It's become a number of different strands that are going on there. There is a personal strand. One of his contemporaries said that Galileo would always rather lose a friend than an argument. He had a genius for alienating and hacking people off, and it went to good measure there. But it's also because the church authorities at the time are hyper-nervous. We're talking about the early years of the 17th century. This is just before, well, I mean, it's just before the Thirty Years' War, but actually Europe has been plagued by religious war for two generations already. The papacy is hyper-anxious, of what it considers almost like a kind of a Hydra-like challenge of Protestantism with heresies popping up here, there and everywhere. And by the time you get to 1615 or so, which is when the temperature changes for Galileo, the papacy is all too willing just to lop the heads off anything that looks like a heresy. And what Galileo is suggesting looks a bit like a heresy. Perhaps underlying more deeply both of those points is that Catholic science, this is a great example of concordism, is based on Aristotelian science. Much Catholic theology is interpreted through Aristotelian philosophy too. And what has been happening for a generation, two generations really, is that the status of Aristotle has been whittled away, first by Protestants, then by some scientific discoveries. And critically, what Galileo was proving here, which was hypothesised in the 16th century, is the Aristotelian universe, one perfect, unchanging quintessence above the moon and dull, corruptible, mundane, earthly changeableness below the moon, Uh, is wrong, and it's demonstrably wrong. But the problem is that a lot of Catholic theology, including the theology of the Mass, is also based on Aristotle as well. So if you start eroding Aristotle's authority there, brackets, you do so on the basis of mathematics, which is not a particularly authoritative discipline at the time, where does it end up? There are other problems as well. You know, that there are good observations that Galileo was making, but there are still questions that aren't settled really until Newton's time later on. So all these come together. There's a personal friendship between Galileo and the man who becomes Pope Urban VIII, which is then exploded when Galileo writes a book which seems to be mocking the Pope in 1632. All of these things come together. There are many things going on there. One of the critical ones is the question of who has the authority to adjudicate on these issues. 
Is it theologians? Is it philosophers? Is it mere mathematicians? Who's in charge here? Is that a good example of this key point of yours of authority? It is. It's, it's a good example. There are others. There's a great spat in 13th century Paris when Aristotle is being introduced into the bloodstream of Europe and the Bishop of Paris doesn't like this. And so the Bishop of Paris issues a set of condemnations against Aristotelianism. It's interesting how, again, you know, this is another example, 300 years later, they're defending Aristotle 300 years before. And it looks like this is another example of the church trying to crush developing scientific, natural, philosophical knowledge. If you look at that, what's actually going on is a classic turf war between the theology department and the philosophy department at the University of Paris. If you go back to brilliant Islamic science in the Abbasid Caliphate in the 9th, 10th century, there is a question of the authority and the weight one should attach to Greek science and the extent to which philosophers or theologians, again, have the right to adjudicate on it. But picking up on your second theme there, or my second theme there, this really gets interesting when the question of humanity, who or what is a human, comes into it. Because we can argue about who has the right to interpret Aristotle or the Copernican universe, and we can fight about that. But what really matters is who has the right to adjudicate, to say authoritatively who or what is a human. Yes, and this is a really important part of your book, who we are, who gets to tell us that. And this is where you think that the kind of sometimes harmonious, sometimes fractious relationship between science and faith really gets interesting. So let's talk a bit more about that. Why is it such an important question? Let's look at it this way. I think anybody with any intellectual honesty would say that science cannot adjudicate on the existence of God. If you have a concept of God that is in any way recognisable from, say, at least the Abrahamic faiths, the idea that science, which is a focus, as it were, empirical discipline, can adjudicate on the existence of a creator, I think, takes science beyond its capacity. OK, so what can science decide on? Well, it can certainly decide on the nature of the world. So one of the questions is, is this the kind of world that we would envisage created by the kind of God we see in the scriptures? And you can debate about that. But more important than that, are we the kind of creatures that are envisaged in the great religions, in the Christian salvation story? Because if we're not, then the whole story doesn't make any sense. So take astrology, for example. Serious science in the classical world, hated by the church fathers, most of them at least. Why? Because astrology seems to do two things. It seems to accord to created things like planets, genuine agency, that seems to challenge the authority of God. But more importantly, astrology seems to say that you do not have control, agency, moral autonomy over your life because you're controlled by the stars and the planets. So at one point, Augustine even employs the logic of what came to be known 2000 years later as twin studies by saying, well, you have a couple of twins, and they differ hugely, despite the fact they're born at exactly the same moment. So that's an example of a science saying, this is the kind of creatures humans are, brackets, not moral, not responsible for their own existence. And religion coming in and saying, no, we can't accept that. And it's that kind of tension. What kind of people we are, what kind of humans, what kind of species we are, and the extent to which that understanding is compatible with the kind of creatures we are supposed to be according to religious traditions. 
Yeah, this question of who we are as human beings, are we merely material beings or is there more to us than that? It animates a lot of the discussion and that seems very important and you pick up on this towards the end of your book. As AI, for instance, becomes such an important part of our lives, what does religion, let's say Christianity in particular, have to offer this sort of discussion? Well, that's a great question, Simon, not least thing as I'm currently co-writing a follow-up book on science, religion, and the future of humanity. So I thank you very much there for you giving me the opportunity of that <laughs> plug. Completely unplanned. And throughout history, there has been a tendency for some science to say humans are only this. And the critical word there is only. Yeah. So take Darwinism thing, which actually we've skirted around rather wonderfully because most of these conversations devolved to Darwin and we've only just touched on it, which is I'm very happy with. But the issue around Darwinism came when a lot of Christians had the idea that by saying we're evolved means we're not spiritual, for example, which is a, a false choice. And some Darwinian scientists thought by saying we're evolved, it meant we are only evolved and there's no other attributes you can claim to us. So the challenge always comes when science says humans are only this. And the danger is with AI that... The theory is humans are only information processing machines, I guess would be the equivalent. You know, we've had humans are only evolved or we're only our genes. Well, now it's we are only information processing machines. And the logic seems to go here. Well, intelligence is basically information processing. Intelligence is what makes us humans. Machines are able to process a lot more information, a lot more efficiently humans therefore qed machines are superhumans they're super information processors which means they're super intelligence which means they're superhumans and actually what i argue in the follow-up book i touch on it at the end of magisteria is that i think that's wrong and i think it's wrong because it completely ignores the significance of our embodied nature yes. humans are particularly intelligent but we are embodied we are situated we are located, we are contingent, we are finite, we are dependent, we are vulnerable, we have particular locatable goods that we pursue and bads that we try to avoid. And it is only by situating intelligence within that embodied, fragile, vulnerable nature that we come to our understanding of humans. The songwriter Nick Cave wrote about this recently about ChatGPT and he said, Good songs are born out of pain and suffering. Yes. Yes. So it's never going to be able to replace that. He's touching on this sort of humanity that seems irreplaceable. He did. It's very interesting. I quote that exchange on, on the, is it the Red Hand Diaries, I think it is? Yes. Um, in the book when, as you say, this fan gets Chat GPT to write a song and start Nick Cave, he sends it to Nick Cave, and Nick Cave is very rude about it. <laughs> and he says at one point, and I don't think the word he uses transcend, but it's the word is synonymous with transcend he said you know music of this nature is about transcending yeah. ai has nothing to transcend right. and i think that is a brilliant point really about creativity is around this tension between our finite embodiment and our sense of the transcendence of getting beyond that but in order to transcend you have to have something to transcend in the first instance your fragility your embodiment uh, a really important aspect of this broad discussion that you've taken on seems to center on trust. Where do we place our hopes? Is it in science and technology to get us out of the various messes we find ourselves in? Or do we need more than that? Is that something that you feel kind of resonates with 
particularly the things you're saying towards the end of your book. I think it is, but I would also say that that is by no means a unique position. In fact, I would probably say that's a mainstream position. It doesn't necessarily mean that you know, people are deaf of saying you know, we need to trust God or trust spiritual traditions or whatever else it might be. But another chapter I'm writing in this forthcoming book is on genetic engineering, um, because this is another critical area. I mean, the argument of this book is that if Magisteria's argument is right and humanity is the core area for tension and interesting discussion here, we're going to see so much more science and religion discussion in the 21st century because most of these important developments from scientific, you know, extreme longevity, um, AI we've talked about, genetic engineering, so on and so forth, these are issues that are really kind of impending on the question of humanity. Genetic engineering is one of them. Now, at the second International Human Genome Conference in 2018, Hu Jiankui, a Chinese biophysicist, announced that he had cloned twins to be resistant to certain strands of AIDS. And people went ballistic. And he ended up being imprisoned by the Chinese authorities. And he absolutely derailed the conference. And people were really worried about this because they recognised that can do does not mean should do. Now, there is a danger that if this is commercialised, it kind of runs ahead of ethical frameworks. There is a real danger here. But the idea that science, technology is sufficient to determine a healthy course of progress is, I think, one held by only the kind of most techno-utopian optimists of Silicon Valley. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. Nicholas Spencer's book is Magisteria, The Entangled Histories of Science and Religion. It's highly recommended, as is pretty much anything Nick writes. And we'll keep an eye out for his next book that he mentioned today and list others of his in the show notes. Please do point people to this episode. Friends you think might appreciate it, learn from it, be challenged by it. And thanks today to our producer, the magisterial Alan Douthwaite. Next week. At the time, I was an expert of the Hebrew revival. And I said to myself, wow, 400 Aboriginal languages, only 12 are alive and kicking, which means 3%. What happened to the other 97%? I mean, it's crazy. 